Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is July the 28th, 2022. This is episode 3,133 of the Survival Podcast. It is an expert council Q&A show, and I have a whole bunch on the docket for you. In the Ron Paul Liberty highlights, Ron Paul will talk about how if, if climate change even really is a problem, the last people you want trying to fix it is the government. And in fact, you don't really want the government trying to fix any problem. And if there is a problem, they probably also created it. And when they try to fix it, they'll make two more problems in their attempt to fix it. Chris Rossini will talk about the fact that most people don't believe the climate change propaganda and why it needs to stay that way. Dan McAdams will remind us it's pretty much the anniversary of Biden's claim that You're not going to get COVID if you get these vaccinations. And guess who has COVID on the anniversary of the day that he said it? Then Nick Ferguson will talk about plants to grow your own rabbit food with. John Pugliano is an old dog learning new tricks after being harassed by me and many of y'all. He's finally gotten over to Fountain and claimed his podcast so he can receive value for value. He said it was going to be too much work and take too much time. I sent him some sats, and I said, well, if you don't do anything else from here on out, you already made $31 an hour, so just relax, because it took you two minutes to do it, and I sent you a 1,000 sats. I want you guys to send him some sats, too. Let's teach this old dog how to drink drink from the, the hose that serves the orange pills up. Nicole Sauce will do a critique of an old canning recipe for stew that says you can make this stew and you can water bath can it. She'll do a great job explaining why the people that came up with it Probably never got sick or died from it, but you probably still shouldn't do it. I wouldn't either. Patrick Rorman will talk about sharp knives versus dull knives and why you want a sharp knife. It seems like an obvious thing, but eh, some people, they need to know a little bit more about it. Jeff Lawton will talk about dealing with toxic farm runoff from a dairy. Dr. Ken Berry will talk about what to do if you become allergic to red meat, probably from a tick bite. And I really like the ending of this one. You'll see why, and I'll talk about it when I do my segment. And then I'm going to finish up with something. Somebody wrote in, and here's part of the email. After reading the Bitcoin standard, I'm really starting to wonder if there's a link between losing our hard money, time preference, and the pivot to mass-produced shit food. Now, this is not going to be a Bitcoin segment. I'm not even going to talk about Bitcoin. I am going to put it both on the TSP channel and the Bitcoin channel because I think Bitcoin is hard money. But you, when I give you this segment today, you can put gold, silver, any form of hard money in uh, as the alternative to what we've been on since Nixon closed the gold window in 1971. And it won't matter. It won't matter because we didn't come off a Bitcoin standard in 1971. We came off the last vestiges of a gold standard. But there's so much more to this than I think people realize. And fiat didn't cause it. Fiat enabled it. And so I think it's hard for me to put it that way because I believe that we've been on a fiat standard. Honest to God, we've been on a fiat standard since, since Roosevelt simply changed the ratio of gold to the dollar value. I think it was 1933, if I remember right, but early 30s when... 
when 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 Roosevelt basically confiscated the people's gold and we went to a script, but at least there was some money backing. But in '71, we went to a true fiat standard, where the government was able to print money at will, utilizing their own captured banking apparatus called the Federal Reserve as a lender of last resort, with money being lent into existence and. It is not the only reason. I'll go deep into what happened in my segment today. But with that, let's go ahead and hear from Ron Paul, Dan McAdams, and Chris Rossini. We've more or less have come to the conclusion <clears throat> that if there is a problem and the government gets involved, they either caused it or if they caused it and they want to correct it, it's going to get much worse. And even if it's a point of nature and they get involved, uh, it, there's not much hope that the government is going to come up uh, with a solution. Mises always uh, made, made the mention that when you allow that to happen in a bureaucracy, they write a regulations and there are unintended consequences they never dreamed of. But his argument was, if, if you do a regulation, you're bound to create two new problems. So you have to write two more regulations. And that's, of course, why the, uh, uh, why the Federal Register is thousands of pages long, and nothing seems to change no matter which party is in power. It just keeps on on and building. But this whole idea that uh, they're going to do something with, uh, uh, with climate and solve this problem uh, I, I think it's way out of, uh, out of control. But in a way, Chris, it just may be that they see what they're doing as being very successful. Because what if they're part of the effort to cause chaos in our streets? Was there really a, 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 an intellectual reason why hey, we had this horrendous uh, lockdown over, over COVID? But we did have chaos. We had a, a lot of mess in the streets. That's not everybody who's concerned about the environment or inflation or whatever. But the people who orchestrate the policies, uh, they, they have a goal because otherwise it's unexplainable. You know, why would the government do, do these crazy things? I believe that the climate emergency, quote unquote, is meant to be the forever emergency. You know, for the most part, the COVID tyranny came to an end, for the most part. But, uh, you know, climate theory will, will never end if people buy it. And, you know, fortunately, the vast, vast majority of people are not buying it. As that New York Times poll pointed out, only 1% believe that this is the most important problem. But if people ever did fall for this, uh, there will never be a time where government would say, okay, we fixed it. You know, the climate is no longer changing, I guess. You know, that, that, will, that day will never come if people buy into this. If they are allowed, the government and their, you know, pet corporations to monitor every move, every product, every transaction in order to make sure that everything is climate friendly as they define it, then they will never, ever give that up. You know, so, but there's good news. You know, they may think that this is inevitable, but they also thought that there were things inevitable during COVID. You know, they were trying to make us show passports to go to a ball game or to go get a hot dog at a restaurant and shame on all those corporations that actually tried to implement that, those stadiums for the ball games, you know, the restaurants, some of them, a lot of them were forced to, but shame on them for actually trying to impose that here in America. But you know what? In the end, they did not get their wish or not getting their wish of vaccine passports. So there is, you know, that is a very good thing to latch on to. They may have all these crazy plans 
for everyone, but they are far from inevitable. It just needs enough people to be vigilant enough to protect their individual liberty. Well, and we're in no way taking pleasure in the fact that the president apparently has COVID, and in fact, we hope he gets well. I saw Senator Paul just tweeted, we hope he gets well, and that's, of course, the case. We don't want anyone to get sick. But at the same time, we have to, we have to remember what's been said and what was done and what was done to the, to the United States uh, by these people. And we see Biden is quad-faxed, and he's got COVID. Just last week, I think it was, or no, it's been a month ago, Fauci quad-vaxxed. He was sick for a month and, you know, said, well, good thing I got the vax. So it's, uh, it's, it's happening over and over. Pelosi, as you point out, vax, 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 sick, sick, sick. So let's remember just a year ago today, Dr. Paul, the president came with some advice. Let's put this up because we can't let it be forgotten when he was hectoring and pestering and wanting Americans to get fired for not taking it. Let's hear what, uh, Let's full screen that and hear what he had to say. You're okay. You're not going to. You're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. Yeah. You but, know what? That was medical advice. Wasn't yeah, yeah. That See, was, practicing medicine without yeah, a license. license. That's there right. you go. <laughs> and then here's the next one when he was hectoring people just earlier this year, trying. You know, and this is when people. It's it's not funny because people were getting fired. They lost their their livelihoods. Some of them lost their lives. And here's him hectoring people earlier this year. There's no excuse. No excuse for anyone being unvaccinated. This continues to be a pandemic of the unvaccinated. It's a pandemic of the unvaccinated. That was also untrue. Yeah. Matter of fact, the opposite is true. Yeah. The, the, uh, the ones that have not been vaccinated are doing quite well. It's a pandemic of the people who have gotten booster shots. It seems to be. Yeah, on, on the last segment, I mean, we're literally starting to get um, reports now studies being done here and there there's obviously not a a lot of money to do these types of studies but showing that that people that have been vaccinated are are literally more likely to get covid than people who didn't or have more severe symptoms from covid than people who didn't the exact opposite of what they said which brings me back to dr paul's original point about the climate crisis even if you believe in it and i mean a full on 100 percent believe in it the last people you should want trying to fix any actual problem is the government. Government thrives on problems. It needs problems to exist. It, it, asking government to actually fix a problem is like, well, I don't know. It, it's like asking a leech to get rid of all the blood. The leech wants the blood But without the blood, the leech is going to fall off and die. Government's a parasite. And parasites are excellent at stealing from their hosts without killing them. Because when a parasite kills a host, the parasite dies too. So government is to problems as leeches are to blood. So the government will never get rid of the problem because it survives due to the problem. How, how much support would there be for larger and more government programs if we didn't have problems? So isn't it kind of, well, dumb to think that government actually wants to fix problems? Next up, let's talk about solving our own problems when it comes to feed supply for our animals with a segment on rabbits and growing food for rabbits from Nick Ferguson. 
Hey guys, Nick Ferguson here from Homegrown Liberty with an expert counsel question on feeding your rabbits from the landscape. I hope more people are thinking about this and raising rabbits, if for no stinking other reason than the fertilizer you can get out of them. If you don't want to eat them, that's fine, but they make amazing manure. They're super simple to keep, easy to manage, and even easier to feed. In fact, you can feed them for free with just a little knowledge. I raised rabbits for years as livestock guardian dog food and as a source of manure for my garden. And like I said, the manure is amazing for fertility. Uh, I'll get Jack a link to the blog post where I have a list for you guys, but it's over at homegrownliberty.com. Let's get into that question. All right, this is from Quacking Duck. Hi, Jack. My question is for Nick Ferguson. What other trees, bushes make good or decent fodder for rabbits or ducks or chickens? For context, I live in Zone 6B, Missouri, and I've planted white mulberry, hybrid willow, and hybrid poplar, but they are still young. I remember Nick mentioning hackberry and elm, but I was wondering about maple and sycamore and any other native trees in my region that might also be good that I could potentially use for fodder while waiting for my trees I planted to mature. Thanks in advance. Quacking duck. Um, all right, so I'm going to talk about the ducks and chickens real briefly. Um, ducks and chickens are not as much of herbivores as, of course, rabbits are. Um, ducks will eat leafy matter to some extent, but they're not, like, super crazy about a lot of the ter- terrestrial stuff. Um, aquatic stuff, sure. But a lot of the terrestrial stuff, they don't go completely nuts over it. They'll they'll get a lot of their food from it, but they are more of an omnivore. Same with chickens. Um, they will eat the plant matter, but they cannot have a tremendous amount of the plant matter in their diet. But most of this stuff, um, they'll just kind of peck through and just eat a little bit. So most of the toxicity issues aren't a concern with ducks and chickens. But um, I would still look into the ducks and chickens thing. I'm going to focus on the rabbits thing. So, um, I think it's a great question. I published a list from a rabbit forum, and I've tried a lot of the plants listed, but there's around 48 on the list, and this is a great rabbit forum, so I trust their information. Um, You're bound to have some of those things growing local to you. On the hybrid trees, with some fertility and consistent moisture, You ought to be able to get those trees to around a good four inches in diameter trunk by the end of the second year. So you should be able to harvest some small amount the first year and definitely a bunch in year two. Most of my trees that I planted um, like two months late are over eight foot tall. So if they're not growing that fast, get them some fertility and water. And I've had a brutal hot and completely bone dry summer we haven't had rain like all but a tenth of an inch in months um so for all of those who are listening and don't really want to go read a list i'll rattle some of them off for you although i highly highly suggest going to my site reading the list so you can compare the latin name and look up pictures so you can properly identify the plants because Depending on geography and regional differences in names, if I say a name for a plant and it's a common name, it might be something completely different where you live. So, if you're an idiot and don't do your homework, don't come crying to me when all of your rabbits die because you fed them a toxic armload 
of poison hemlock. So, let's get to that list real quick. American sycamore, apple, basil, blackberry, carrot, cattail, chickweed, wild chicory, clover, comfrey, dandelion, hackberry, kudzu, lamb's quarters, silver maple, sugar maple, mesquite, mulberry, plantain, raspberry, rose, squash, and sweet potato. That last one is fantastic, by the way. Um, And back on the fodder trees, make sure you get your head wrapped around where you want to expand your fodder tree forest. Because winter is going to be the time to take cuttings from the willow and poplar. You simply pick about a pencil diameter, as small as pencil lead size stems. Um, Especially with the willow, you can do pretty small. Um, Stuff much thicker. I mean, I've gotten whole willow logs to root as, as fence posts. You could jam the whole ding willow log, like 8-inch diameter logs, jam it in the ground, and it roots and grows. Um, and that's all you do. You stick them in the ground about three-quarters of the way deep. They'll need to be about 8 inches long, but I like to go with around 12 inches long just to be on the safe side. And just put a little bit of mulch around them and leave them alone. Don't pull them out of the ground to check and see if they're rooting because you'll rip all the new roots off. And you'll want to keep them watered well the next year. And voila, you have a few hundred new trees. So, as you all know, I am a big proponent of using trees as livestock feed. I'm actually going to be teaching about this several places this year. And uh, keep those consulting requests coming. I still have maybe one or two slots available this upcoming month on my trek to, it looks like I'm probably going all the way to North Carolina. And I've got a few open in September all over the place. So I hope that answer helped you out, Duck. I'm Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty. Do good things. Good stuff from Nick Ferguson, and it's stuff like that that makes it why I'm going to be giving him two hours of instructional time in total uh, for the fall workshop to talk about making your feed supply apocalypse proof. Anyway, uh, we're about to hear from John Pugliano. I thought it would be a good time for me to read our Boostergrams. And yesterday, like I said, I think I burned up seven minutes reading Boostergrams. And so I'm, I can't do that anymore. So what I've decided I'll do until maybe I can't do this as well, if you boost me and you leave me a gram, I'll read at least part of it, and I'm going to only read them for the show from the prior day. So yesterday I had a great show with Billy Bond. Here's some of the boosts. TNT Mom boosted a 1,000 sats and said, Holy cow, I was laughing at the pig food part. First the restaurants, then when Billy started talking about how to throw all the talking points at the school board. Um, PN, P Ninjas said, sent us 958 sats. Testing the sat earning reset. Great episode once again. Trolls in the bowl and with troll tears. Delicious, says user 8115. 621 sats. Uh, next up, 500 sats from Mike the Polymath. Meeting Billy and William at SRF was a highlight. Glad they're getting their message out. Yeah, it was a great thing to meet them there. That's Self Reliance Festival. 500 sats from user 1914. At the end of the day, I can't get married and still be a bachelor. Okay. Not sure where that's coming from, but that's true. Uh, 400 sats from user 4689. Trolls. Wow, Jack and Billy. Lots of power here. 333 uh, sats from Black Pelican Brandon. He makes Black Pelican custom rods, by the way, and they're gorgeous. Uh, Boost for the trans-testicle polar bear. (laughs) That was good. 
Andy Bellini says, great conversation, Jack. I love the long-formatted interviews you've been doing. 250 sats. I love them, too. I don't know that I can do how many shows a week like that, but that was good. Uh, Cal Gaseous PT, 250 sats, great episode on the Redneck Polymath Podcast. Another boost, Jack, from RWA Podcast, 200 sats. And I'm going to call it there just because the list is longer than I thought. Thanks to all of y'all. Exchanging value for value with podcasting has been great. It's given me more of a connection to you guys. Kind of, I feel like, like live streaming has. And I really appreciate all the boostograms and the support. And even if I don't read them on the air, no, I read them all every day. They make my day. And I want John Pugliano to have a similar experience. So I and many of you have been on him about getting his ass on Fountain. Well, he's already there. All he had to do was go click a link, click a button, say this is me, stick his email address in and click a link when it came to him. He said it was too much, it would take too much time. I have to put my time where money is, you know, okay. I said, you hate money. You can't be a financial manager, not a good one, and hate money. Do this. So he finally did after being ridden all day yesterday by me. And I sent him a thousand sats, and I'd like some of y'all to go send him a sat and some, some sats and some boostograms and stuff and start communicating with him. But he, it made him do a segment on old dogs learning new tricks. Hello, TSP. Well, today I have a rhetorical question for you, and that is, can you teach an old dog new tricks? I bring this question up because I'm one of those old dogs that's a slow adapter of new technologies and new things. Now, that isn't such a bad thing. In fact, one of the reasons I attribute to my success is my ability to stay on task. And that means not wandering off to every little new shiny thing that catches my attention. And so for me, my focus is return on investment. I've developed skill sets that earn me a living, and then I spend my time focusing on those efforts that make me the most money. In my case, that's investing and being a money manager. Now, along with that, I do other things like create content, so I have a blog, a YouTube channel, and a podcast. And by the nature of what I do, I consider myself a professional content creator, with one caveat. You see, I have no intentions of generating an income off of the content I create. And any income that I have generated, for example, from writing a book and paid speaking expenses and other things like that, well, that's just icing on the cake. My focus is not to create content for compensation, but to create content so people learn more about me, what I do, and it's a sales and marketing funnel that leads them to my investment firm, which is Investable Wealth, So I put all my effort into the investing business itself, and then any of the other activities are just ancillary to that and supportive of that business model. I bring this up for a number of reasons, one of which is that I would really encourage people to find out what they're good at, what marketable skill it has, and how they can get compensated for it, and then put your efforts into developing that skill. So many people whether it's building a business or even just developing an investing technique, they go from one thing to another. They never take the time to put in the 10,000 hours to make the sacrifices to do what it takes to become successful. And so the grass is always greener somewhere else, and they're always jumping from opportunity to opportunity, but it never pays off for them. The other reason I bring this up is because being stuck in a rut and never learning or adapting new things is also an equally bad disadvantage. If you're not trying new things, you're going to become stagnant and not grow. One of the things that I'm definitely a slow adopter of is social media platforms and new avenues for creating content. 
My listener base is pretty much focused around the iTunes biosphere, and I don't drift very far from that or really make any effort to branch out into new platforms. But I am making an exception to that, and that's because of the prodding that I've been receiving from Jack. Jack's a big proponent of the Fountain Podcasting app and how it's integrated with the Lightning Network. From a return on investment standpoint, I don't think something like Fountain is going to be that beneficial to me in my particular situation. However, Jack has been such a big proponent of it, and he's gone out of his way to more than nudge me and sell me on the concept that it's something that I should be doing. And since I don't hate money, and since I do value Jack's opinion so highly, I've claimed my podcast. I'm going to give it some time and see what happens. And I would really like nothing more that have to go down to the fall workshop and publicly admit that Jack is a jerk. And because he prodded me into claiming my podcast on Fountain and that it's providing me with a whole new revenue stream that I never imagined. Well, hey, let's see how it works out. And as always, thanks for your questions. This is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealthsteading Podcast. So I do want you guys to support John on Fountain, and I want to talk a little bit about and build on what he was saying, though, about business and new technologies and using new technologies. There's a reason that new businesses tend to grow faster than old businesses, and I'm not talking about the ones infused with massive amounts of venture capital money and things like that. I'm talking about small businesses, like my business, like John's business, and it's why I've always never let myself not examine new technologies. Now, I don't jump on with every new technology. But but here's the reality. A podcaster who starts today is probably going to start immediately live streaming when he records his podcast to YouTube and other channels. He's not going to record just to a hard drive on a computer because he's getting more by doing the same amount of work. It's literally no extra work to take StreamYard, live stream, grab the MP3 and upload that and have my content in multiple places than it is to record and put on one. The other thing is you'll have a business that's not even aware that they are already ha- already have assets in the marketplace, just like John. John thinks he's put his podcast on Fountain. John didn't put his podcast on Fountain. John's podcast, by being in the Apple directory, John, guess what? You are not iTunes-centric. There's people listening to you every day on Stitcher, on Spotify, on Pocket Cast, on CurioCaster, on Breeze, on Fountain. Because you're in just about every podcast directory there is, because the place all these other directories get the podcast from tends to be by importing them from the Apple directory. Now, you can submit to them and get on there quicker. That would be a good idea. But a new podcaster is going to know this. An old podcaster like me may not know this unless he stayed abreast of new technologies. So new businesses, when they enter a space, whether it's investing, manufacturing, service, technology, whatever it is, they're going to use the things that are available now that are the best for their business, where somebody that's been doing it 10 or 20 years is going to stay the course. Both of those sides have attributes. But the reality is, what happens to older businesses is they get outpaced by competitors who are using the latest technology. And John doesn't have to do anything else. That was what I was prodding about the whole time. If So if you're a podcaster, go get the Fountain app, and it's not like joining Twitter. You don't have to do a lot. All you have to do is, well, click a button that says, this is mine, answer an email, 
And that is it. And then it is residual income. And residual income means I did a thing once and I benefit over time. Podcasters, we build legacy content that if we're doing it right is evergreen. That somebody's going to go find something a podcaster did three years ago and it will be the thing they really needed to hear. And so that means when we put that out there, if there's a way to monetize that content, the person that finds that, you never know what it's going to mean to them and in their life. And it was a hard thing for me to accept, like people just sending me money, because that's why I have MSB. That's why I didn't ever want my show to be about donations. But when Adam Curry explained this technology to me, he said, it's not donations. Never call it a donation. That's a person choosing. There was a certain value to them in what you did for them. And he said, he, he, he talked to me on Back Channel on Twitter. He said, think about what you do as a podcaster. You're not the waiter that brings the meal to the table. You're the purchasing manager that brought the food into the restaurant. You're the chef that prepared the meal. You're the, you're the waiter that brought the food out. You're the busboy that took the dishes away. You're the door person who sent them to their table. You're the general manager who made sure they had a good experience. If you did all that in a restaurant and you charged $200 for that, that experience, you wouldn't blink when it was paid to you. Let that person decide what value you bring in their life and graciously accept it. It makes perfect sense to me, but it's about using the latest technology because if you don't, your competitors are going to. Not being on a live stream platform was a mistake. My YouTube presence would be much larger today if I had adopted that technology earlier. There was a reason I started audio only. And honestly, until about five years ago, there really wasn't, the tech wasn't really there to do it the way I do it now. And it didn't really make sense. And there wasn't a lot of competition there. But I should have started live streaming five years ago, not one year ago. Next up, let's hear from. Uh, Nicole Sauce on water bath canning meat. That sounds like a bad idea, but can it be done without killing yourself? Maybe. Hey, TSP, Nicole Sauce here with an expert counsel question from, about canning, one of my favorite topics. This is the question. It says, I just found a recipe for Amish poor man's steak stew, which includes meat and milk, and to water bath can quart-sized jars for three hours. I was always told that meat needed to be pressure canned, and this is the first time I've seen a meat recipe for water bath canning. The recipe states that the Amish have been doing water bath canning of meat for hundreds of years with great results. I looked on the Internet and found people stating that they had canned this recipe, but they don't say if they water bath or pressure canned. I do a ton of canning in the fall, veggies and fruits, and I'm contemplating giving this a try. I have an electric smart pressure canner, but it's small. If I water bath canned, do you think... I I can do many courts at a time. I would love to hear your thoughts. Thank you. I have so many thoughts about this. I just did a meat canning webinar with the Live Free Academy in partnership with John Bush last night, and there were a lot of questions about water bath canning meat and other low acid fruits. And so the backstory is this: there are two types of canning: water bath canning, where you put the bath or you put the jar in water and it's totally submerged, and you boil it for a certain amount of time. The things that you do water bath canning with have high acidity. So they are 4.6 pH or a lower number, which is higher acid. And the reason we do we can do this with those is that the one food pathogen that is the one you really don't want to get 
E. coli might kill you if you got like a really bad case and it was terrible and you weren't in very good condition. Botulism. Botulism is not your friend. Botulism will probably kill you if you eat it out of canned foods. Or if you get to the hospital soon enough, they may be able to keep you alive on life support systems long enough to get through it. But it's going to be a terrible, painful experience if you live. You don't want it. So low acid foods like green beans, corn and meat are above a pH of 4.6, and that means they are a low-acid environment. Botulism is a spore that wakes up and has a big party if it is in a moist, oxygen-free environment that is warm. Warm being room temperature is warm. Room temperature is warm. And a jar with a lid, a mason jar with a lid filled with meat is a moist environment with no oxygen. So... In order to make sure that those spores are deactivated, we raise the temperature in the jar higher than 212 degrees. We raise it to 240 degrees, and we want to make sure it gets to 240 degrees at the very center of that jar and that we hold it there long enough to kill that spore so that it does not wake up and have a party and poop out the toxin that attacks our nerves. That's, that's the background there. Now, I'd like you to think about this like pasteurizing milk. When you pasteurize milk, you can heat it to 150 degrees for 30 minutes, or you can heat it to 162 degrees for 15 seconds. So would you rather heat it for a lower temperature for a longer amount of time to kill E. coli and other things in your milk, or would you rather heat it to a higher temperature, 162 in this case, for at least 15 seconds, so for a shorter time. And the answer comes in, it depends on how you like your milk to be. (laughs) You can just decide and do what you need to do. Both of those things will kill the, the bacteria that are in milk. Okay, let's go back to the meat. If you want to kill the botulism toxin, you can heat your meat to a lower temperature and leave it there for a longer period of time. And that can also kill the botulism toxin or the botulism organism. Now, if you then can the food and there is one that you missed and it wakes up and it has a party and it has babies and its babies have parties. And next thing you know, you have a senseless, sightless toxin in your food. You can break down the toxin by exposing it to heat. And if you do that, then it will break into its parts and it will not attack your nerves and you'll be okay. So this is why when we have low acid foods like green beans, corn, and meat, and we have home canned them, we pour them out of the jar into the stove and we turn the stove on and we have them in a pot on the stove and it boils. And when it boils for about a a five minute period of time, in my case, it needs to boil for a minute to a minute and a half at, you know, below a thousand feet. So this needs to be adjusted for your altitude. If you boil it for a minute to a minute and a half, definitely breaks down the toxins. If you boil it for five minutes, you know, it really boiled for a minute to a minute and a half. That's how I deal with all of my canned food. So back to the Amish recipe that has you water bath can, a meat based, milk based, broth soup thing for three hours that hasn't killed the Amish. You have two things going on here. One, they are cooking the crap out of that. I'm not even sure how good it tastes after boiling for three hours. Three hours is a really long time to boil something. But 
be that as it may, that's what they're doing. And then I can almost guarantee you what the Amish are not doing is taking that jar of soup, dumping it into a bowl, putting it in the microwave and hitting go. Nor are they popping that jar and just eating it out of the jar. They are probably pouring it into a pot on their stove and boiling it to reheat it and serve, which means if they had a problem in the processing, it's very likely that the toxin would be handled. That said, I am actually willing to take risks canning. Like I clean my jars before I pressure can, but I don't worry about boiling them or sterilizing them like I showed in the in the webinar last night, which is the proper way to can because I know how hot that jar is going to get and I'm not worried about a random piece of yeast from the air ruining the whole batch because it's going to die in the pressure canner, okay? But I would not make this recipe and can it for two reasons. One, it has milk in it. And when you pressure can milk, there is no recommended guidelines for canning milk. And I'm in the process of finding out why, but I do know this. The mouthfeel of milk changes when the fats cook. And when you pressure can milk and bring it up to 240 degrees, that's pretty darn hot and those fats get cooked. So I'm afraid that pressure canning this recipe would change the character or mouthfeel of it in a way that would be yuck. And then secondly, even though you can water bath meat in theory, just like we have the theory of, of, you know, making our milk safe, pasteurizing milk, that doesn't mean you should water bath can it. And there's a higher risk that the botulism would have lived through the process if you're only heating the water to 212 degrees, assuming you're, you're at sea level, right? So the higher you are, the lower that temperature is that water is boiling at, and that makes a huge difference. So there's a lot of variables there that I would not mess with, even if the Amish have done it safely for hundreds and hundreds of years. Just wouldn't do it. What I would do instead is look at that recipe and take the meat out and pressure can it like a soup. I'm not the meat out, the milk out. Pressure can it like a soup. And then when I reheat it on the other side, add the milk to the broth, like the fresh milk from my fridge. I bet that would taste pretty good. And then you don't have to go through the, do I pressure can or not pressure can? Am I going to get a weird mouthfeel or not get a weird mouthfeel? Am I going to kill my family by giving them a horrible nerve-borne toxin? Or is it going to be safe this time? Those are questions I don't want to have to face. So I just handle my low acid foods properly, just in case my opinion was not 100% clear. Hope this helps you make your decision about that recipe. Guys, if you want to know more about me, you can find out at Living Free in Tennessee. That's where my podcast is. Or you can buy delicious Holler Roast coffee roasted to order at hollerroast.com. There's even a member discount in, in the MSB. So go get that before you get your coffee. Make it a great week. So when I think about this in totality, I agree with Nicole you could do it, but you probably shouldn't do it. And the product you're making probably sucks anyway. But maybe it's good to know that you could do it if you had to do it. And maybe it's really good to know that all of this fear talk about botulism and canning, if you always bring the item that you've canned to a good simmering boil for four or five minutes, then you will never have to worry about botulism because you'll break down the toxins and it won't actually hurt you. 
And that way we can stop being afraid. So that's what I think was really educational about that. But as to whether or not I would do it the way this recipe recommends, it makes me think of something George Bush said. And I'd like to do an impression of George Bush, but I'm not very good at it. But I have a friend who is. Not going to do it. Wouldn't be prudent at this juncture. <laughs> that, of course, is Dana Carvey and the voice that he used to impersonate George Bush when he was part of Saturday Night Live, when Saturday Night Live was actually funny and didn't suck. Anyway, let's now hear from Patrick Worman of MT Knives about sharp versus dull knives. Hey, guys, it's Patrick with MT Knives coming to you today with today's expert counsel question of the week. This week's question comes from Papa Pepper. He's got a YouTube channel. If you haven't, if you want to check out some cool videos, go check out some of his. I recently got back from a survival kayaking trip with him. We had a lot of fun. <clears throat> so his question is, why do people say a dull knife is more dangerous than a sharp knife? That is a question that I'm sure you have all heard or a statement that you've all heard said from time to time, and I'm going to explain why I believe they say that. So, here's the deal. When you get used to using a dull knife, or when you not get used to it, but you have to apply a lot of pressure. And people have bad techniques when cutting. You've heard it say, don't cut towards yourself. The reason behind that is, is when you're cutting, and especially with a dull knife, you're having to use a lot of force. And if that knife slips, guess what? All that force is going to go toward your body and into your body. Um, I actually, just last week, um, stabbed my thigh with a talon. I was cord wrapping it, and um, thankfully it hadn't been sharpened yet. And something slipped, and I stuck that talon right in my leg. So, thankfully, it had not been sharpened, and it did draw blood, but nothing major. So, that is why I feel like they say a dull knife is more dangerous than a sharp one. But here's the caveat. A sharp knife is not going to stop until it hits the bone. So, on the other hand... When you have a crazy sharp knife, like the knives that I send out, it doesn't require much force to cut. In fact, it requires little to no force to cut. Most people are not used to handling a knife like that, and they're very careless with a knife. So, it's typically in the first day or two, maybe the first week or two, If not, within the first day or two or week or two, you're probably going to cut yourself with a sharp knife if you're not used to handling one. I still cut myself from time to time, and I think, man, that sucker is sharp. So, there are some people that are afraid of a sharp knife. It A sharp knife just has to be handled with respect. You cannot have a sharp knife and be careless with it because it's going to cost you. On the same hand, a dull knife is more dangerous than a sharp knife if you are careless. 
you're going to end up slipping and sticking a knife into your body somewhere if uh if you just have poor practice so i suggest learning how to sharpen a knife but also learning how to respect a knife it's going to keep you and all of your fingers attached thanks for the question papa pepper and as always if you have a question send it to patrick at mtknives.net thanks have a great day my uh, old coal mining grandfather and we used to say, I tell you right now, dull knife, you cut yourself with it faster than a sharp one, but a sharp one, you cut yourself worse. Wise words from an old man that, uh, I'm sure cut himself more than a few times. <laughs> anyway, uh, good stuff from Patrick. Next up, Jeff Lawton on dealing with toxic runoff, in this case from a dairy. Hi, Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Jordan. And I have a question about uh, someone's worried about farm runoff, pesticide, herbicides, in a stream. Um, and they want to use the water for irrigation. Uh, the streams, um, the farm's got about five to 600 foot of footage. Um, and the stream is about eight to 15 feet across. And uh, one to four foot deep, depending on the time of year. Um, and they're mostly dairy farms upstream, um, and um, they want to know whether I'd be worried to use the water for irrigation and livestock. <clears throat> well, that sounds exactly like where I live in Zaytuna Farm, except we don't have so many dairies anymore, but we do have some conventional water upstream, and we have um, about 2,400 feet of a, um, a small river or creek that runs on our boundary. And um, we do use that water. Um, we've put in so many dams and swales and water systems. We've got our own water now, which is the ultimate answer, really. Um, put in enough of your own water catchment that you can only use that water as a, a, an emergency. But look, if the cows are still alive uh, in the dairy, um, it's probably not that toxic. Um, and um, their, their pasture is okay. And, and, and the stream's got life in it particularly fish you know so if you've got fish and frogs and aquatic life which is extremely sensitive to chemicals so most of your soft-bodied animals and your and your aquatic life um, it can't be that bad so if you're telling me it's an absolute dead stream that looks like sort of lick you know like watered down liquid manure and nothing's alive in it uh, we might question it you could get the water tested but i would say that if the stream's alive and the cows are quite healthy and their pasture looks okay, uh, what you've got is a little bit of runoff that's been actually already filtered out by the aquatic plants on the edge of the stream. Is the stream well forested? It's got a kind of ecosystem edge to it. Now, if you wanted to, you could pump that water up, take it through a reed bed and then, or extensive reed beds, and then put it in the header tanks and then use it after it's gone through a reed bed. But I think that's a little bit over the top. Um, you know, you, you, it's really biology that filters all these things out. So a reed bed does it, but the side of the stream is like a reed bed. And if there's healthy water plants in the stream and there's healthy fish in the stream and generally aquatic animals, and the side of the stream is reasonably well forested and it's got water plants all around it, you probably find you've hardly got any any problems in the water much at all 
And then you're going to use it on soil that's sustainably building organic matter. Now, we've got to get to 3% plus before we're really uh, in a system where the soil is continuously fertile and can continue to be fertile. So, as you know, you don't have a sustainable system if you're reducing the fertility of your soil uh, or you're losing soil um, through erosion because there's just an end point where it's all going to stop. So as organic practitioners, permaculture designers like I am, consultants, uh, we build systems that create their own organic matter and feed the soil. Now that soil being fed by organic matter is a whole set of organisms that are processing um, carbon cycles. And those carbon cycles lock up those minor toxins. They become additions to the carbon molecule and... Um, and long chain molecules with uh, locked up chemicals that are all inert. So as long as you're in that organic process of putting compost, compost seeds, worm castings, worm juice, and, 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 and bulk compost and mulch materials down on the ground, or you're chopping and dropping lots of materials onto the ground, you're causing lots of organic carbon d decay building your organic matter, really, there's not that much you've got to worry about. You're probably breathing more toxins in the air than you've got to worry about there with those systems in place. Okay, that's my advice. Yeah, I'll just add, though, you know, our Earl, uh, they're going to have a segment here in a bit uh, about agriculture and our food supply and how fiat applies to it. And you're going to hear me make a statement in there where a, a gentleman named Earl Butts told the farmers in this country in the 1970s, plow from fence row to fence row, and that would include all the way up to the edge of the stream. Everything you just heard is why it is so important that we have broad riparian areas along our stream banks. We should never get open field with, in my opinion, absolute minimum buffer of, of a good uh, 25 to 30 yards strip off those streams. If we do that, a lot of the problems that we have with exporting toxins and topsoil will stop. It, it, it's not the only thing we need to do, but it's a hell of an easy first step. Next up, we got a question for Ken Berry on a meat allergy, and I've heard of this, and it had me really, really concerned about ticks. Um, this ends with some good news in it. Here we go. Hello, Jack Spearco and all the TSP troops. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from Ed. Ed says, can someone who is allergic to red meat eat a proper human diet? A friend of mine has been diagnosed with mammalian meat allergy, also known as alpha-gal syndrome. This often comes from being bitten by a tick, but there are a few other very rare causes. He has all kinds of problems if he eats red meat and some dairy products. He lives in Virginia and believes it came on after a tick bite. Yes, it probably did. So first thing you need to know about alpha-gal syndrome is that it is short-lived. Most people, within three to nine months, this uh, short-term allergy to red meat goes away, and then they're able to, again, eat red meat and full-fat dairy. Uh, during the meantime, he can gorge himself on all poultry with the skin on, chicken, duck, goose, every other animal with wings. He can eat as much seafood as he wants, including shellfish, crustaceans, and ocean and river swimming fish. And then he can also eat lots of eggs and egg yolks. 
so that he's going to be able to get all the fatty acids, amino acids, vitamins, and minerals that he needs in his diet until this temporary alpha-gal syndrome goes away. Hope this helps. Thanks a lot, guys. This is Dr. Barry signing off. So the one thing I didn't know about this is what he ended with, and that is that it is usually temporary and it's not that long of a condition because I was like, man, if I get bit by a tick and can't eat steak for the rest of my life, what's the point? One fat I'll add uh, to uh, Ken's great recommendations there would be avocado. And uh, I, I really recommend uh, those of you that have a Costco near you, Next time you're in there, look, they'll have a box, and it's organic avocado mash. Sometimes it says guacamole. Sometimes it just says mashed avocado. It's, it's guacamole. And uh, it's like a box of 18 little individual cups, and it, it sells for like 8 bucks. And it's got to be equivalent to like, I don't know, it's probably equivalent to like 10 normal-size avocados. And it lasts a long time, and you can freeze it, and there's no effect on the texture, the flavor, or the taste if you freeze it. So I'll, when we go to Costco, I'll buy two or three boxes and throw them in the deep freezer, and I'll take them out like half a box at a time, put them in a little Tupperware, and throw them in the refrigerator. And I add them to just all chicken. This morning I did two nine-mile farm fresh duck eggs straight from the duck itself. Right five minutes ago it was out in the coop, and I brought them in, and I'm going to eat these too. And uh, some bacon and some jalapeno from a jalapeno I grew and a little bit of cream. Now, this person wouldn't be able to have the cream and some cheese, which they would also have. Mix that into eggs so the egg gets more of a, a quiche-like consistency. Fried the bacon and the peppers, threw that in there, mixed it up, got it nice and brown. When you put that cheese in the meat, you can get, or in the eggs, you can get a more of a brown. But what made it like really great was I took one of those cups of single-serving avocado mash and just threw that on the top, hit it with some salt and pepper, and that was fantastic. Makes me want to eat breakfast again. Don't usually eat breakfast, but today I felt like I needed to, so I did. Anyway, with that's a good transition to talk about the connection between crap food and fiat currency. And we are live, so let's get into my segment for uh, the Expert Council podcast today. If you're watching this on YouTube, this is just one 15-minute-ish piece of a full podcast of over an hour featuring a lot of really great experts on a huge variety of topics. I also am streaming both on the Survival Podcast YouTube channel and the Bitcoin Breakout with this, even though this is not a Bitcoin segment at all. But it certainly applies to Bitcoin if you view Bitcoin as hard money. That's pretty much all I'm going to say about Bitcoin today, other than when I quote the individual that asked the question. We're going to talk about the food supply today. And this is due to an episode I did this week with Texas Slim. And it encouraged this individual to start thinking and to think about something else at a book called The Bitcoin Standard by Safety. And this is a piece of the email he sent to me. He said, after reading the Bitcoin standard, I'm really wondering if there is a link between losing our hard money, hence our time preference, and the pivot to mass-produced shit food. Uh, indeed, there is. There is a huge link. And I wanted to do this little segment today. And I probably need to do a full show on the history of all this, because if you're concerned about your health, it's important to know why you're eating garbage. And you probably, many people don't understand that they're eating garbage. And they don't understand that they're eating garbage because they don't know how we got the garbage. So they can't figure out that the food is the problem. And fiat 
caused this problem in a way. It more accurately enabled the problem. So if we have really dry woods and we go out in those really dry woods and we start pitching matches back in the woods, there's a pretty good chance we'll start a forest fire, but the match may burn out. It may not hit a dry enough spot. The fire is not really caused by the woods, uh, but in the end, it is the woods that burn. Okay. But if we were to go out and dry woods, like in a drought like we are now, and be complete assholes and dump a couple gallons of gas on the ground and pitch a match on that, there'd be a massive forest fire and we probably belong buried in a hole for what we have done. But the gas didn't really cause the fire. The re- because the gas itself got done burned out. It was the fuel that ignited the fire that then led to a chain reaction of releasing stored energy. That's what a fire is. People say, I heard Michael Saylor say one time, fire is a battery. Fire is not a battery. Fire is the energy released from a battery. If you put flame in the air with no fuel, it extinguishes itself. A lump of wood, brush, is a battery of energy that is released by the flame. And gas would enable a faster release. For something that was already in motion, to happen much more quickly. That's why they refer to it as an accelerant. So that's the way to think of fiat in <clears throat> the story I'm about to tell you. It was an enabling accelerant to a process that was already on the way. So we have to go back to the 1900s, the early 1900s, and understand how food was being produced. Then we have to understand how, even though Roosevelt was a socialist, Not everything he did was necessarily bad, um, and not everything that came out of what they did with ag during that time was bad. It probably wasn't optimal, but it wasn't all bad. And then the transition that was made in the 70s under the direction of the Nixon administration, a gentleman named Earl Butts, and how that's been carried forward. So in the, in the early 1900s, a farmer would get a piece of land and think, this is money. And we had the most fertile land in the known world in the Midwest United States. So they, and then they started to get these farming implements, uh, mechanized plows and stuff like that. And they pretty much farmed every inch of the ground that they could farm. Then we got a drought right in the middle of the Great Depression. It led to what we call the Dust Bowl. It also led to incredible surges in production which then created a collapse of the price of food. So all the grains and stuff, all the stuff that they were plowing and planting, since everybody did so well, they had this huge surplus, and then the market price would crash. There's too much. And then during droughts, there would be too little, and prices would surge. So the farmers that could still produce during a drought produced even harder than before because they were going to get a lot of money, so they farmed even harder, which made the drought worse and made the Dust Bowl worse. So the Rosenfeld administration, and you can read a lot of this stuff. I've got an article here I'm going to refer to a few times. I'll pull up on the screen right here on Grist, where you can you can verify everything that I'm telling you right now, and, and I'll, I'll come back to that in just a bit. But we go from there to a point where the... Roosevelt administration realizes that we have to do something about this oversupply, undersupply issue. So what they say is, we'll tell you basically how much to plant. If there's some extra, 
that we can't sell into the market that starts pushing the price too low, we'll buy it from you. When we need you to leave some land rest, we'll pay you not to plant it. And that way we won't overproduce. And if there ends up being a bad season, we'll take the grain reserves and we'll release them to stabilize the market. And we're already paying you not to produce that year somewhere or someplace, so it'll all work out. Was it a perfect solution? No, but it, it was better than what they had before, and it's better than what we have now, which is basically a larger version of what we had before. So coming up into the 70s, Nixon takes over, and this is all viewed as socialism, which in some ways it most certainly is, but that doesn't mean the solution is to go crazy with it. But you can't tell this to the Secretary of Agriculture, Earl Butts, and what he does is say we need to we need to grow as much as we can, as hard as we can, as fast as we can all the time. And the farmers were a little bit leery about this. They weren't so sure about this idea in the beginning because many of them at the time, if they're older farmers, they were around for all the crap that happened pre-war. Right. So if you know if you were a 25 year old farm kid working on the farm for your for your dad. If you got, if you made it back through World War II, if you got drafted or whatever, you know, right now you're, you're an old man, but you're still around. And so farms back then were very much held in families. And so the older men were telling, you know, the younger kids like, we, I don't think we need to do this. But Butts was a good salesman and he said, you don't have to worry about this. What we're going to do, we're going to open up international markets. If there's any surplus, we'll sell that shit overseas. And eventually he said things like the one one quote I want to read to you here from this article on Grist. Uh, With grain reserve hollowed out and drought impending in the 1973 harvest. So that's what happened. They, they, they went crazy in production. And then they sold a whole bunch of grain to the Soviet Union. Because like me, remember the 70s, there was a whole big thing. Like if we can't keep getting grain to the Soviet Union, it could cause a war because they were going to starve without us. Okay. Um, but grain prices jumped and farmers scrambled the plants as much as they could to take advantage of it. What does that sound like? That sound like the 1920s? Okay. And then Butts fanned their frenzy. He said the following, plant fence row to fence row. He extorted from his bully puppet. In other words, plow up and plant every bit of land you can. Get your tractor on. He booked no dissent and said, get big or get out. He routinely thundered that. That was something he said not, it wasn't a single time, if you've ever heard that quote before, that that was, that was said. It was said many times. Now, I'm not going to read from this article, but I do want to put it up on the screen for you, and there will be a link to it in the show notes so you can read it yourself if you want to. Um, this is the, the secret history of why soda companies switched from sugar to high fructose corn syrup. And I'm going to refer to this a bit, but I'm not going to read it. It is on Mother Jones, not my favorite publication, but it is accurate. It, it does come from their side and their agenda, but it is accurate as to the details of what went on. But this is one of those things where you kind of have to start connecting multiple pieces and ends together. And if you don't, it's really hard to understand everything that happened. So while this is going on, while these farmers are being told to plant from Fence row to fence row, and everybody's being told it's about grain. Grain for the Soviet Union, because as long as we're feeding them, we won't have a nuclear war because they can't afford a nuclear war because we're feeding them. Right? It's not about grain. It's about corn and soy. 
the entire United States market is being pushed in the direction of corn and soy. And this is also being capitalized on by companies like Ocean Spray. And the first man that ever got a big corporation to switch from sugar to high fructose corn syrup, I can't remember his name, but it was in the early, early mid seventies. He worked for Ocean Spray. And the first year that they fully switched over, his company made so much more money that he went out to Montana and bought a massive ranch with just his bonus and paid cash for it. That's how much money this dude made just by making this switch. So everybody, when they hear that, they think, well, it's just cheaper to make high fructose corn syrup than it is cane sugar. Well, it's not. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. How's that work? Okay. And they said, oh, I know it's subsidies. Oh, we'll get to the subsidies. But it's not just the subsidies. So about all this time's going on, Mr. Butts, he doesn't go to Washington. Well, he kind of does. He's already there. But he goes to the international sugar markets. And he says, there's too much sugar coming into this country. It's driving down the price. And the poor sugar cane farmers in South Florida can't make a living. We need to do something about this. So, of course, farmers in Nebraska and all growing corn and soy and wheat don't give two shits. Doesn't bother them one way or the other. So they got nothing to say about it. So there's no opposition. Dudes down in Florida cutting down and draining the Everglades grow, grow sugar cane. They're all about this. So they go out and they increase tariffs on imported global sugar supplies so that sugar coming into the United States costs more than sugar produced in the United States by a factor of two. And then all of a sudden, sugar is expensive, even though it's not, because we were paying two times for sugar in the United States what most other developed countries are paying for sugar. Because, believe it or not, it's easier to get sugar out of sugar cane than to get a modified, chemically altered, processed sugar out of corn. And I'm not saying one's, you know, the, the cane sugar is good. I'm just telling you what happened, because it plays into more than just how much sugar a person's eating directly. It's also indirect. So then there's this huge push to grow corn. And then the government comes in and subsidizes crops like corn and soy. So then it becomes super cheap. Now, this was all done by design. The growing middle class needed to be fed. And, well, we can't feed all these guys on steak. We need cheap shit to put in boxes that shelf-stable that we can feed them. So then we had this glut of sugar and sugar and beans, basically. And so it ends up going into everything that you eat. Well, the soda companies look at companies like Ocean Spray with their juices and go, if it works for them, it'll probably work for us too. And they switch over to high fructose corn syrup and they actually are, they end up, end up not just with a different type of sugar and a worse form of sugar for our livers because fructose is a liver toxin in the way that alcohol is a liver toxin. It just doesn't make you drunk, which makes it worse because you'll consume more of it. So if you really want to destroy your liver, Get yourself some orange juice and some vodka and make some screwdrivers and you're well on the way to cirrhosis. Well, so we have all this stuff in our food. Now, here's the other thing that happens. Up until all this shit happens, the idea that you were going to take a cow and feed it for six to eight weeks at the end of its life and stuff it with corn didn't would have made sense. Anybody raising cattle anywhere in the United States, that would have been nothing at all that any rancher would have ever thought about doing. But all of a sudden, corn is cheap and soy is cheap and it's abundant and it makes cows fat. Now, I talked about this with Texas Slim this week. If you took a cow 
from the time it was weaned from its mama and started feeding it the shit they feed them in CAFOs, it wouldn't grow up. It would die. It cannot, it literally cannot grow and live on the food we finish it on. When you start feeding that animal that way at the end of its life, you are transitioning it into the, the point of where I want to do as much, as much as I can to increase the weight before I kill it. And if I don't kill it with a bolt in its head, if I keep feeding it that way, it's going to die. So we largely didn't have what we call CAFOs today for the beef industry prior to the 1970s and all this happening. You see how it all plays together. And then there's such a, there's such a glut, but at the same time, it drops the prices of everything going into the 1980s. And what happens then? Well, first, all the people that caused all the shit to happen go, Oh, sorry about your luck. And all the farmers that took out all those massive loans. And here's where the fiat comes in. The fiat was available in buckets. So they went to the farmers with buckets of money and said, here, cheap loans, easy, plant fence row to fence row. It'll be great. Until it wasn't. Until the glut got so big with ag and prices went so low and interest rates soared past 18%. And then what happened? The equivalent of BlackRock today bought up and consumed all the farms and made them into giant super farms. And then to solve their problem, they convinced us, you know what would be a great idea? Let's take this corn that we're already killing you with and let's make it into ethanol. And what do all the big giant farm conglomerates that now exist out in Nebraska and Kansas, et cetera, say? Whoopee! That's another place to sell our shit. Plow more. Without fiat to subsidize this, the loans... The other side of the food equation, if you had to have honest money during this period, none of this could have happened as quickly as it did. Farmhouses that, that families grew up in for seven and eight generations were burned to the ground and plowed out of the way so that the corn could go there too. We didn't have these fields that you can't even see the other end of on a flat surface. In the 1960s, there had been a farmhouse somewhere here and there. There were patchworks of them all over the place. Most people were farming anywhere between 80 and 1,000 acres, depending on who they were and what they were doing. Now farms are routinely 40, 50, 100,000 acres, and not one house on them. Not one person lives there. And then we're destroying the soil. And if you want to know if a society is going to fall apart, From a health standpoint, look at the health of their soil. The health of our soil is dog shit. Actually, dog shit would be better for our soil than what we're putting on it. And dog shit's probably not the best fertilizer to be using as a manure. And this is why our food supply is crap. This is why what you're eating is crap. This is why even though I'd rather you eat <clears throat> feedlot beef than soy and corn in a box, feedlot beef is also crap. Because you're eating an animal that ate crap. And hence you're eating crap. A cow is a ruminant. It is a, it is a grazing ruminant. It is supposed to eat forbs and herbs and grasses. That's what it's supposed to eat. And when it does, it is incredibly healthy. If you get a cow past being a young calf and you have good pasture, you almost don't have to worry about anything as a rancher after that. That animal's gonna thrive. That animal's gonna thrive. 
If you have a browsing ruminant, then they eat browse and herbs and forbs. That is your sheeps and your goats and your deers and your elks. That's what these animals are supposed to eat. And when you eat an animal that's eating what it's supposed to eat, you're eating the kind of food you're supposed to eat. And if you're eating something that was grown in an earth-dead, mineral-deficient soil, and let's be clear about it, it's not really mineral-deficient. Since we've destroyed the life in the soil, the plant can't get to the minerals that are actually there. There's minerals in all this soil. We can fix all this with regenerative farming and rotational grazing and savannah minimic systems and infiltration of water systems like key line plowing, key line swale design, conventional swale. Like all this stuff works, but all the places it needs to be done are being plowed fence row to fence row to grow mostly corn and soy today. And that's, that is how fiat destroyed our food supply. And that's why if you go find, go Google pictures of people on the beach in the 1970s and 80s. And then go look at pictures of people on the beach today. People on the beach in the 1970s and 80s, it wasn't like everybody was posing, like, all you fatties get out of here. Like, it's not like we had no fatty signs on the beaches. Go look at pictures from the 1970s anywhere. Look at pictures of kids in the 70s and 80s and the 60s. They were kids. They ate candy. What changed? The entire food supply shifted over time, and it did so in such a way that not only was the food lower quality so that we had to eat more because we felt hungry because we were nutrient deficient. You have to think about that. So back in the 20s, Doctors would prescribe for children with mineral deficiency. They'd tell a mother, just give them a teaspoon or, or, or so of sorghum syrup in water every day. And of course, kids drank it right down. It was sugar. And it, it worked. Why? Because sorghum was a very efficient, dynamic accumulator of nutrients. Sorghum syrup today, it jacks shit for nutrient because it doesn't have any nutrient. All they got is NPK because that's what we put on there. But take away fiat. Take away the ability to subsidize both sides of the crop. Take away the ability to easily manipulate global markets. Take away the ability to just hand out loans to farmers until they're bankrupt. Take away the ability to then give all the money that they wanted with no consequences for failure to pay because you just give them more money to the giant conglomerates. Take away fiat and the ability to convince people that it actually makes sense to put more energy into producing a gallon of ethanol than you get out of the ethanol. You can't do that without fiat, can you? You can't spend more money to make a gallon of ethanol than you can sell the ethanol for unless you can have subsidies, and you can't have subsidies the way we do without fiat. So, yes, and there's more, and maybe I should do a whole show on this. That's it for today. I'm not going to hang out and chat here in the live feed. Thank you guys for tuning in. Remember, uh, the podcast itself will go out about an hour from now. We have a lot of really great people worth hearing from today. You can always find my podcast at thesurvivalpodcast.com and the stuff that is Bitcoin-specific at thebitcoinbreakout.com. Take care, guys. 
So with that, we have wrapped things up yet again. I want to remind you, if you like the show and the work that I do, a lot of ways you can help support me now because you can get on the Fountain app or any of the other Value for Value podcasting apps and just listen to your podcast with a different app, throw a little Bitcoin in it, and then you can tip or Value for Value compensate or however you want to think about it. Not just me, but other podcasts you listen to, including the Well-Studying Podcast with John Pugliano. Let's orange pill this dude. Uh, you can also, of course, join the Member Support Brigade. You get discounts on all sorts of things. If you want to reclaim your digital sovereignty, for instance, with a Start9 digital server, you can pay for your membership right now for like four years with one discount. Your ButcherBox membership, that's $10 a month off your ButcherBox high-quality meat there. That's $120 a year. The membership's usually 50 bucks a year. There's a ton of other discounts. There's on CBD. There's on coffee, lots of seeds and plants. And, geez, guys, there's tons in there. Go look at it. And uh, you get discounts on all of that stuff year-round, and it makes you money. So don't hate money. Get the discounts. Even if you don't like me, you should still get the discount membership. And right now, because there's been so much troll and imposter activity, through now through the end of next week, You can get a discount down to 30 bucks a year. The discount code is TROLL. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. And then the other thing you can do is your online shopping at tspaz.com. I know I'm a tspaz commercial, but that's because it's my site. You should use it because if you use it, you can buy stuff you were going to buy anyway. It won't cost you any more money. It'll take a couple extra seconds, and you support the show without any money directly out of pocket. And you can get all my great recommendations. Now, I just told you all about how our food supply is messed up. And I'm getting ready, maybe next week, maybe the following week, one of my Just Jack shows is going to be about cooking again and cooking techniques. There'll be recipes, but we're really going to focus on techniques. And so this week, kind of priming that pump, I've been pulling stuff out of my kitchen tools and cooking uh, listings from my reviews. Today's item is a little bitty item that's stupid cheap. It's eight bucks. You're going to look at it and go, why is a survival podcast dude showing me a picture of an orange, blue, green, and red brush? Because... Basting is a hell of a good technique with cooking. And the way this ties into my segment today is that not only at the same time that all that stuff I said happened, happened, we also transitioned to eating food out of microwave ovens that came in boxes and bags, and we stopped cooking our own foods. When you don't cook your food, you're more likely to eat garbage because you don't know there's garbage in it. It was in a store. It had a picture of a steak or a, a hamburger or, or a chicken nugget or whatever on the front of it. All those words are really small and hard. So we, and then latchkey kids, moms leave food in the freezer, and nobody learned to cook. We thought learning to cook was reading the instructions one minute and 30 seconds, flip it over one more minute, take it out, and don't burn yourself. That was cooking instructions for Gen X. Fortunately, some of us liked to garden and to hunt and fish, and we had to learn to cook our own food, and we had to learn to cook real food. I did. And losing the skill set of being a cook is also part of why our food supply is so screwed up and our health is so screwed up. It's better to eat food that's not optimum that's prepared with ingredients that you know than to eat food that's not optimum with garbage, additional garbage in it, like high fructose corn syrup. I bet you if you cook your own food, you're not going to put something in it that has 18 syllables in it that you don't know what it is. You're going to use things like salt and pepper and meat. Even if you use flour, you're going to use flour. Not right? You're not going to do that. So to me, it's a big thing to cook. And one of the greatest things you can do to improve your cooking, especially meats, 
is learn to make good basting sauces. Use dry ingredients, not wet marinades, not all the time, but many times. Use, use dry rubs, dry ingredients. Even if you do a marinade, it's a light marinade. Get the meat really dry before you cook it. If it's in a marinade, take it out of the marinade, put it on a rack, and let it dry in the refrigerator for an hour or so before you cook it. You'll get a much better sear. Okay? And then at the end of the cook, hit it with a baste over high heat and glaze it with that baste. Caramelize that baste. So you need a good brush to do this with. Now, this seems like, so what? I'll just get a basting brush. They're all crap. Guys, this is why I do T-Spats. They're all garbage. You're so, hose nozzles? You want a hose nozzle? Go search my software for hose nozzle. You'll find two of them that don't suck. There's one more that doesn't suck that I haven't reviewed yet. I just haven't gotten to it. But there's like three hose nozzles in the world that don't suck, and there's like 9,000 that do. All of the brushes, they have those fibers and crap on them. They hit the grill. They burn. They singe. Like, if you want a big barbecue mop, I get it. But if you're on high heat, you don't want, you want, what you want is silicon. Then all the silicon brushes have like a metal handle and a silicon tip, and they stick it on there, and the silicon expands over time, and it falls off, and the brush falls apart, and you throw it away and cuss at it. Or you get these, you get four of them for eight bucks, and it's one integrated piece of silicon. The bristle is part of the brush, nothing there to fall off. I've had mine for like five years, and they're still like brand new. I use them every week. They're awesome. They're eight bucks for four. If you're like me and you have an adult kid that won't ever buy good shit for himself, I bought a, a, a four-pack of them. I'm like, I never need more than one or two at a time, so I gave two of them to him. I kept the freaking blue one and the orange one because those are Florida Gator colors. He got the green one and the red one. You, you do it your way. Anyway, you can always find out about cool stuff like this at tspaz.com. And if you go look up this one, I give away one of my go-to basting sauces. Here's the here's what it is. I'm not going to give you ingredients. You have to go look it up if you want to know. Or I'm going to give you ingredients, but not quantities. But it's made with soy sauce, Worcestershire sauce, hot sauce, jalapeno-infused olive oil, white wine, and mustard. Mustard? Why? Just a little bit of mustard. You put all of that stuff in a jar and you shake it up. The mustard is an emulsifier. It makes the oil and the liquid, like the soy sauce and the wine, actually combine instead of separate so that when you use it, you're actually getting the flavors combined instead of one floating on the other because it's an emulsifier. That's actual science, right? But I'll, I'll give you three other things that you can just add to that base and make it even better, like gochujang. What's that? You'll have to go find out. You'll have to go find out. You should go take it a look. Learn to cook, and you'll end up eating better food. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and wrap up. Thank you guys for being with me today. Thank you to all of you who have sent Boostergrams. Thank you to those of you who will send Boostergrams and streams to John Pugliano so that old dog can learn new tricks. And I'll be back tomorrow with, well, I don't know if it's going to be Outback with Jack or a Just Jack show. One way or another, it'll be just me. They're gonna bail you out or just run you around. They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way You don't have to be another face in the 